The Classic is a new podcast series from Off the Ball, bringing you the real-life drama behind some of sport's most fascinating stories. This is episode four, A New Dawn in Dublin. It tells the incredible story of one of the most audacious plots in Irish football history, and one that almost changed football forever. Wimbledon were a team without a fan base, and Dublin was a fan base without a team. So it made sense to take a Premier League team and move the franchise, as you know happens quite controversially uh, in American sports. You know, where you 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 take a team from a city and just bring them somewhere else and and rename them, and that was what was planned with Wimbledon. The partnership between um, Irish people and the Hamams will create a new club, which will be an Irish club. I mean, Sam Hamann had, had worked miracles with that club in keeping them in the top flight. I think he had one or two top six finishes, won the FA Cup in 1988. They didn't play pretty football, but they were punching well above their weight, and Sam Hamann knew that and knew that something had to happen. But at the time, there was, you know, there was there was this push to get a Premier League football franchise for Dublin. They need at least 19,000 people to survive. I shouldn't think they'd have any difficulty getting 19,000 people here. But well, that's what I'm saying. So it is a good financial business to move a club to where you will get actual support for your club. Even if it is a business, it's still a game at the end of the day. And oh. this business is in jeopardy of eating the very foundation of our own Irish domestic game. Ireland has the opportunity to be a first world football country. In the mid-90s, a group of Irishmen hatched one of the most audacious, original and potentially revolutionary plots in Irish football history. They wanted to move an English premiership team, Wimbledon, to Dublin. The plan set off a bizarre civil war in Irish football. Owen O'Callaghan, the Cork developer, had just announced that he was opening a multi-purpose stadium out at where the present Liffey Valley shopping centre is. This is Tommy Higgins, an entertainment business entrepreneur who had brought HMV and Ticketmaster to Ireland and a key member of that group. So um, I met Owen at the, at the opening. I said I'd be interested in the ticketing contract. So he asked me down to Cork and we went through all the different things. And he wanted to put in different concerts when there wasn't. He was hoping to bring in the rugby and the, the soccer. But one thing I noticed with Owen's uh, setup that he had no anchor tenant. In the, in the, he was trying to get this in. I said, it's going to be difficult if you're going to be dependent on concerts and stuff and putting up a 40,000-seater beautiful stadium. So a couple of weeks later, or a couple of months later, I was reading the Sunday Times, and there was a big article on Wimbledon Football Club with Sam Hamam, and he was having difficulty with Merton Council because uh, he had a small run-down stadium because he brought that team from non-league right up to the Premier League, a huge achievement. So <clears throat> I said, well, there's a man looking for a ground, and Nono Callaghan is looking for a tenant. So I wrote a letter to Sam and Ma'am. I said, worth nothing, would it be interesting having a conversation? And that was on the, the September 1994. I didn't think I'd hear anything back. And then about a week later, I got a call saying, there's a Mr. Hamam looking to talk to you in my office. I left my number. But it wasn't Sam, it was his brother, Ned. And uh, 
talk to me and ask me what was it about and I gave him a brief outline. It's, so he invited me over to um, to London to the met at the Dorchester and a very close friend of mine, Morris Cassie, who was the promoter of Riverdance. And I, I ran it by Morris. Morris, I'll go over with you for the to see what it's like because it sounds a very interesting idea because there's a huge market here in Dublin for a, prof- a good professional sports team. And the League of Ireland was in terrible state at that present. Huge neglect on that. And I could see that because I was a soccer referee for 25 years in the League of Ireland. Well, so I could see what was happening. So uh, we met and we met uh, and Sam didn't come. He sent the brother. So uh, he kept saying it was crazy, but it was a great idea. But it was crazy. He wrote me a letter back then about a week later saying thank you but no thanks with great idea etc 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 and I drifted away then so about six months later I got a call from my friend Morris and he said it was just after meeting Eamon Dunphy and Paul McGuinness they were in Baggett Street outside having a cup of coffee and they started talking about this Wimbledon thing so I was wondering where did they hear about it then I figured out that Eamon would, would, would have been very close to Joe Kinnear and I'd say Sam may have mentioned it to Joe, and Joe may have said to him, look, this is a great idea, when he, when he thought about it. Wimbledon manager Joe Kinnear was a former Ireland international who had led Wimbledon to unprecedented heights. He had made contact with former Ireland international and by then a high-profile journalist, Eamon Dunphy. Yeah, Joe and I were friends. We, we roomed together uh, when we were both playing for Ireland. We were good friends and we had a lot of laughs. And um, he said, you know... He was the manager. Sam Haman was the owner. The stadium they were playing in was falling down. They weren't really commanding the support that they really needed to be a Premier League club, despite how well they were doing. Look, he said, we were interested in coming to Dublin and having a Premier League club in Dublin because the demographics are good, the appeal is there, and uh, there's no one doing it. And I went over... I met him, I met Sam Hamam. The stadium was derelict, really, for a Premier League club. And they couldn't get permission, I think, from the local council to do the renovation that was required. And Hamam had this idea that Dublin was the spot. That was the beginning, really. So I went to Omar Callaghan. He was the first person I went to. I told him what the proposition was. The money was manageable big time uh, and then uh, I wanted to get some people I went to Paul McGuinness That's Paul McGuinness world renowned music mogul and then manager of U2 Paul had money and was interested very interested and then I went to Tommy Higgins and Morris Cassidy who were friends of mine acquaintances of mine they were the, the core group and I sat them down. I said, OK, guys, here's where we are. And um, OK, so let's go and see Sam. So actually what we did, we got Sam to come to Dublin. I introduced him to this core group. Uh, and um, everyone was extremely excited about it. That was about six months after I contacted him the first time. And uh, they, they ended up, himself and the brother arrived, and we met down the U2 office down in Rogerson's Quay. Sam Hamam was the charismatic, often divisive, chairman of Wimbledon. The Lebanese businessman had bought the club when it was languishing in non-league football. By the time the Irish consortium approached him, 
Wimbledon had won the FA Cup in 1988 and were a long-established member of the English top flight. But in 1991, they were forced to leave their home ground, Plough Lane, and up routes to the opposite end of London to ground share with Crystal Palace at Selhurst Park. Paul Howard, now famous as the author of the Russell Carroll Kelly books, was working as a sports reporter at the Sunday Tribune at the time. Sam, man, I mean, he was a he was a businessman. I don't know if it's fair to call him a wheeler dealer, but but that's certainly how he came across. I, I don't mean it as an insult. He was a wheeler dealer and a very charismatic man, and he had created this huge success story with Wimbledon. He was a what I call a colourful character, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, so the first thing he did he grabbed his crotch and he started thumping his chest and talking about the fans and football and what he would do and what he wouldn't do and kept bringing up and crazy and this and that he said he'd be lynched if he tried to do what we were proposing to do but you know when we sat down and then explained to him I said you will get a reg- you, you can you know, I, I would believe you could mix with any of the big clubs. You would have you know, 40,000 people but we all agreed that it would be a, a, a long shot to, um, you know, to, you have to bring the UEFA on board or FIFA or whoever it is and you have to bring, of course, the FAI. And bit by bit, it got to the stage that he was starting, he was warming to it. Uh, he said he'd think about it and come back. So they came back again. And uh, then we were trying to put a price on it and we went on for a while. And Sam and the brother went down to the corner of Paul's office and they were talking in Arabic. And we were up at the other end and we were saying, well, should we talk in Irish? But none of us had enough Irish to talk. So we let it go. The boys came back up and they said, look, OK, we will sell 75% of the club for £6 million sterling. Which was a snip. The deal would see the Irish consortium take ownership of the club, but with Sam Haman still remaining at the club. Upon a move to Dublin, the club would be renamed. The Dublin Dons and Dublin City FC were some of the proposed new titles. That's the first page of the copy of the, the contract. Uh, yeah, the heads of agreement, six million sterling. In late 1995, the European Court of Justice ruled that Belgian footballer Jean-Marc Bosman could leave his club on a free transfer once his contract had expired. It changed football fundamentally by giving footballers the same rights to move freely between employers as any other worker in Europe enjoyed. And the Irish consortium looking to bring Wimbledon to Dublin saw in that the key to their success. It was after the Bosman ruling, which is now operational, and the key factor in the Bosman ruling was the footballing authority's case was that this was a sporting matter and therefore he was bound by sporting rules and the European Court of Justice disagreed. They said that football is a business and therefore the rules that apply in business have to apply in football. Hence Bosman was free and that changed the whole landscape in football. And if you applied the Bosman ruling to the idea of Wimbledon having a home in Dublin it was clear, trying to stop that would be the same as trying to stop Marks and Spencers opening a branch. And the consortium felt the time had come for Irish football. Soccer here, uh, it was post-Jack Charlton. The game had reached, you know, every village and townland in the country. And I thought it would be a fantastic boost for Irish soccer. 
They plan to put in place other measures to support the wider game in the country. So we have to bring the FAI on board and the League of Ireland. And I, we were had provided for a two million fund for the League of Ireland to foster and promote the game there. Because there's an awful lot of money going into the game now. Two million back in 1990, you know, four, five, six, one by the time, this was down for about two years. Uh, it was a lot of money. That figure of two million is sometimes said to have been as much as 10 million with £250,000 given to each League of Ireland club. Then he invited us over to his, to his house. It was before the, the opening game of the season, the 96th season at this stage, by the time we got round to it. And that was the day that Beckham scored the goal from halfway line. And we had dinner in Sam's house and O'Callaghan. The, the whole lot of us were there. We are all there. And everything seemed to go fine. After that, we were all spotted at that game, the, the, you know, and it was a lot, the opening day of the season, everybody was there. It had been around in the ether for so long. Everybody was talking about it before anyone was actually writing about it. And I, I'm sure, like a lot of people, I, I just thought it was pie in the sky when I, when I heard about it first. But then I heard about this meeting that happened in London between Ono Callaghan and Paul McGuinness and Sam Haman. Eamon Dunphy was there. And this was the group that was planning to take over control of Wimbledon. And uh, Sam Haman, while he officially, you know, sort of on, on the record dismissed the idea, uh, we all knew off the record that he was actively talking to them about selling and that uh, they agreed a price and, and shook on it. And that was the first time I thought there was a chance that this might happen. Now, the battle to win hearts and minds would begin. In the autumn of 1996, the consortium hosted a press conference to lay out their master plan to the world. Dunphy, who was doing his work unpaid and had no financial stake in the move, would front the campaign. I do remember, I think, that everyone didn't stand up and give us a standing ovation and say, that's great, lads. <laughs> I think there may have been a bit of that about it. And I think uh, it was sort of small town thinking really I was mad for it and lots of people I knew were mad for it uh, when you explained it to them but I suppose people come up with gimmicks all the time or pull rabbits out of hats that turn out to be not rabbits but we'd spent a long time and I'd spent a very long time making sure that in detail we had everything with all the sort of ducks in a row with the exception of an FAI sanction go for it the Premier League had committed uh, provided everyone else was on side yeah I mean it was I, there's no point in denying it I mean the, the hostility towards it was depressing the League of Ireland clubs and their fans would soon become the main opponents to the plan this is Niall Fitzmaurice. He is a Shelburne supporter and he would become the chairman of the group leading the League of Ireland protest, National League United. But at the start, he was one of just a handful of members. It kind of raised its head in the media. Um, so I think the first I would have heard about it would have certainly been through newspapers or on the radio or whatever. And out of that then, I was contacted by a couple of concerned League of Ireland fans who, who were very afraid of the idea of um, a big English club relocating in Dublin 
uh, the damage it could do to League of Ireland football. We decided to form a group of fans who would represent the feelings of League of Ireland supporters who were hugely against the idea. But the irony of it was football fans in general, uh, most of them who supported the Premier League, support English football, were in favour of it. You know, so we as football as football fans, or as we used to like call ourselves real football fans, being Irish football fans, we were against it. But there was an awful lot of people in favour of it. At the time, the League of Ireland was in a kind of a, probably the way it always is. It didn't really know where it was going. It didn't know how solid the ground underneath it was. And to have a big English Premiership club coming to Dublin and flooding the market and attracting the kind of attention that they definitely would have attracted. I think that worried League of Ireland fans and League of Ireland clubs that not just would it damage the League of Ireland, but there was definitely a groundswell of opinion that it would nearly could have had the potential to kill the league. Bernard O'Byrne took over as chief executive of the FAI shortly after talk of this move had hit the press. Well, when I joined the FBI in 1996, it was the biggest file on my desk the first day that I went in, I remember. Obviously, it had been in the media beforehand. So uh, it was item number one on my desk when I went in, and it took up uh, most of the next 18 months, I suppose, with uh, numerous television, radio and press interviews, debates, hot and bothered, left, right and centre. I don't think it ever occurred to to Eamon Dunphy or Paul McGuinness or Owen O'Callaghan that their biggest fight was to persuade two or three hundred people who, you know, go to see Athlone Town, you know, that they should like this idea. I don't think they ever figured that that was the big fight. I think they thought the big fight was with the Premier League chairman, with UEFA. Um, that, like, that's, that's what they thought the battle was. Niall Fitzmaurice organised the first meeting at Wynn's Hotel in Dublin city centre in September 96 to start the fight back. You know, we were saying, OK, we're setting up this group. We're five or six League of Ireland fans who we were kind of going into the unknown because we were doing stuff, with a couple of interviews with newspapers, radio, stuff like that. But we didn't really know if we had the actual support of League of Ireland fans. Were they actually behind us or were we just a group of people who were overly worried about something? We walked in and the room was full well before the meeting was even due to due to start. So it was great to see. Once we saw the crowd that turned up in Wins that night, it was very exciting. Uh, and the room was probably only supposed to hold about 200 people, but I think there was definitely three or 400 people there that night. It was packed, absolutely packed. And there were people who travelled up from all parts of the country for that meeting as well. So. Whether we were right or we were wrong, we were standing up for what most certainly the vast majority of League of Ireland fans felt at the time. People were genuinely concerned. Like you're talking about people who, like, a lot of people invest a lot of time in, in League of Ireland football for little or no reward. You might win something every now and then and get to celebrate it, or you might get to travel away with your team in Europe, and you'll, you'll always have memories. But in general, when you volunteer, to, to be involved with a club or when you follow a club it's hard work most of the time but when it's conceived that, that that's under threat or the possibility that what you love and what you've done for the last 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years is under threat and you might not have League of Ireland football to go to so there was a lot of 
anxiousness in the room. The primary thing that came at the meeting was the actual forming of National League United because up until then we were just a group of five or six individuals from different clubs. So National League United was formed out of that. We knew once we got a big crowd that turned up that night that we had a mandate. Also importantly what came at the meeting was the opinion of League of Ireland fans was put out there because we would have had a fair old media presence at the meeting that night and for, for weeks afterwards apart from being the chairman of NLU I, I became the main spokesman uh, and, and my phone was just hopping like all kinds of individuals would be ringing you I was, I was on every radio program you could name I could see on a certain level how they'd feel threatened who's going to come to our, our matches if there's a big Dublin Dons match every two weeks but that's it's, it's natural but it, it's not really you know if you look at the evidence of a big player coming into any retail thing and that's what you're doing with football you're selling a product it's a rising tide all boats rise and that was the principle that we were looking at I certainly wouldn't want to damage Irish soccer um, in any way and I didn't think Irish soccer would be how could it be damaged First of all, we were going to give them loads of money to develop their grounds and to develop their youth structures. Uh, we would be nurturing a whole generation for generations to come of young Irish soccer players who may or may not be good enough to play in the Premier League, but they'd certainly fertilise all around them. Soccer would be huge here. You'd have a full stadium every week, no question about that. So I couldn't see the downside for the clubs at all and I think the opponents of it were small minded you won't get the big dreams and you won't have the capacity to um, change what is a very unsatisfactory situation for Irish soccer, you will plough on making the same mistakes And this was the crux of the matter Those who had been supporting Irish clubs for decades who in their minds had been keeping the game alive here and who argued the plan should be to improve Irish clubs rather than transplanting one in versus those who wanted to embrace the new and modern potential of the franchise model. For Eamon Dunphy, it would be his role as the frontman of the consortium to sell that message to the Irish people and build public support. But there was one faction in Irish football who he did not get on with. This is Dara Whelan journalist and author of Who Sold Our Game, which outlines the rise and fall of association football in Ireland. It's funny, the standout for me when I think of that time is I think of Dunphy on the radio and, you know, being, you know, so vehement and, you know, defending the Dublin Dons and, you know, Eamon's a great man to have in your corner, but he's very black and white and antagonises so many people and I think that was the memory I look back to and I, I think of Dunphy the kind of um, agitator in that sense so could they have had more diplomatic people maybe to try and push it in the media I'd argue yes but if you're going to get media coverage who better uh, to have pushing it so it was a kind of a double edged sword for them I think I suppose when you had Dunphy there kind of as the face of it that then was enough for League of Ireland fans to be kind of circling the wagon and coming together and it's the one time you would have had Rovers and Bose fans all coming together you know singing from the same hymn sheet um, and yeah just you know seeing that kind of unity of the League of Ireland um, behind it League of Ireland fans would have remembered the older ones would have remembered when he was writing in the 80s um, for the Tribune um, I think it was and he called it the Chicken League he was scathing of the league. 
Another thing that kind of roiled supporters of football, Irish football, was the fact that Eamon was involved in it because he hated the League of Ireland. He'd, he'd no time for the League of Ireland uh, and he'd make that quite clear. Look, the League of Ireland is not perfect, but there's lots of people in the League of Ireland do an awful lot of hard work and try and keep football alive. And that is football, that's Irish football. So if you love Irish football and you want Irish football to succeed, well, the League of Ireland is a very big part of that. There's no doubt that his involvement, I think it's brought people on. It's possible, I, I, if I had nothing to do with it, I mean, have got someone uh, like John Giles uh, say, I mean, I am what I am, and maybe Marmite is what they say, um, or polarising. I think it's possible, yeah, I, I, I think it's possible. Yeah, but I think my hostility to the League of Ireland was real, uh, and continues to be real, because it's, it's, it's a bloody mess most of the time. You know, I, I mean, they're fantastic people in it, but, you know, I've seen lots of good things in the League of Ireland, but lots of awful things as well, terrible things, you know. I suppose, I don't think really, if you were serious, my presence in it would have deterred you, you know. In the 1970s, Eamon Dunphy had returned to Ireland after a career in England to be part of Johnny Giles' takeover of Shamrock Rovers. Giles had come home with the dream of revolutionising the club and making it as modern and competitive as the best in Europe. The grand plan lasted a little over half a decade. In a lot of ways, the Wimbledon thing, the precursor to this, was what Giles tried to do with Shamrock Rovers in the 1970s, which was, um, you know, pick a club, uh, get investment, become like a centre of excellence, like Ajax. That was that was the idea, and that, and I suppose in a way this was the child of that plan. Really, you know, that one failed, and it failed because of you know opposition again, opposition within Irish football. We tried to bring it into Rovers way before Wimbledon. Everyone treated properly, everyone paid, went to school in the afternoons. We got laughed at and abused, doing all the right things, and we'd travel to, down the country and you'd play on a shitty, no one bothered in their arse. At the same time, they were hating you. That's the problem. That's why I'm so not pro-League of Ireland. There was quite a lot of talk about it, you know. It was just one of those ones. People became very entrenched early on, you know, and people who believed 100% and people who were anti it, like, you know, were anti it 100%. And there wasn't a lot of room for discussion. You know, people took positions. I remember debates on radio about it, but what what tends to happen with those debates is that, you know, people with extreme, you know, really, really extreme opinions would ring in. So it always turned into a, you're anti-football, no, no, you're anti-Irish football. Those, that, that's what it, it just descended to. There was a chap on there complaining about it would interfere with League of Ireland football. Yeah. Premiership football interferes with League of Ireland football as it is. There's matches televised live on the telly. The pubs are full. So these people are actually not going to the matches, the League of Ireland matches. They're going to the pub to watch Premiership football. We won't be interested in just kind of Judas money to give up our principles and say yes. We, we have looked into the whole ramifications of what would happen uh, if such a move came and we are absolutely convinced that it would be wrong. Communications between the consortium and the FAI were carried out in the main through the media with a battle underway to win public opinion from the outset. 
The only time they would have had to go to the FAI is when you had really secured and locked down the team and this is what is going to happen. Then you would go. But there, it was all over the papers. I mean, it was non-stop. It was all through the media. If you, you know, <laughs> you know, we would, we would, we would say what we were going to do, and people would talk to Sam, and Sam would talk forever, and then they'd go back to the FBI for a quote. It was a wonderful period for the, for the, for the, for the media. That PR campaign was a central plank of the Dublin Don's plan to win public support. And it has to be, in your view, something like Wimbledon coming in. Well, Wimbledon isn't coming in. I mean, a partnership between um, Irish people and the Hammams will create a new club, which will be an Irish club, uh, owned by Irish people, for Irish people to watch and for Irish players. And so Ireland has the opportunity to be a first world football country. Persuasion was important um, to get public opinion on our side, to overcome the FAI and League of Ireland resistance. We thought we'd, you know, found a way to create something wonderful and we want to persuade everyone. Bernard O'Byrne and the FAI weren't pleased with the consortium's approach. It was through the back door and I think that was a fault, that was a tactical mistake that they made. They should have come in, come straight in through the front door of the FAI and said, here's an idea, here's an offer, will you have a think about it? And immediately you see that, that put the barriers up because people who just didn't know the facts um, got very, very suspicious. And they unnecessarily, I think, created um, enemies uh, immediately. And then what they maybe didn't know is that they had a lot of supporters around the game who they forced into a negative position by the way they approached it, even though I would be perceived as absolutely always against it. I was doing that from my professional role but as a football person and looking at the possibilities I always knew there was possibilities there but they were they handled really really poorly I thought you know of course in all of this there was another group unmentioned the supporters of Wimbledon in London in August of 1997 as discussion of the deal heated up on both sides of the Irish Sea they staged a protest for two hours after a home game against Manchester United here's one of the consortium's members Ono Callahan on RTE Radio's Live Line in 1997. Dublin isn't that far from London. Newcastle, I believe, is every bit as far as not further away. So the, the distance in this modern day is not a problem. And if, if Wimbledon's home supporters are prepared to, if, if they're prepared to travel to the places like Newcastle, Leeds, etc., etc., surely they'll travel to Dublin as well. And we're talking about, and I, I, I still stick to my figure, we're talking about six or 7,000 people in comparison to probably 40,000 Irish people. And while the Wimbledon fans may have felt they didn't have a say in the deal, they had one group who saw themselves as their allies. Apart from wanting to protect the League of Ireland, I think one thing that really, really irked people and, and what really got people in the League of Ireland was the idea that this club, i.e. Wimbledon, which was a small enough club, but they had a great little tradition They'd come from nothing and rose up through the leagues. And then all of a sudden, that was to be taken away from their fans. And, and Sam Haman, who did wonderful things for Wimbledon in, in his time. But I think the sheer idea of taking that football club, whether it's to, it ended up in Milton Keynes, but whether it was to Cardiff or Manchester or Dublin, 
horrified a lot of real football fans in this country who said, oh, mate, you can't do that. That's that's not right, you know. And so I felt I felt greatly for the actual Wimbledon, Wimbledon fans who were going to lose their football and did lose their football club. And League of Ireland fans got that. We got the idea that, hold on a minute, these people have done what we've done. They've travelled up and down the country. They've invested their time and their spirit and their energy in their football club. And someone's just going to take it away. Why? For the love of football? No, because it's a financial venture which they think this club can succeed elsewhere. And the whole idea of going down the franchise line, which is, you know, in the USA, they've, they, everything is franchise. Um, but there's no heart, there's no soul in it. We like heart and we like soul and we like football clubs. And so to, to, to kind of take uh, a club and relocate it somewhere else and, and just ride roughshod over the supporters, that didn't sit well with us. The consortium were confident that even with FAI objection, they could still be successful by taking their case to the European courts. We would have gone to Europe and actually, eventually, they would not have been able to prevent it. Freedom of movement and all that, especially that there was precedent in other, like Derry, for a, on our own doorstep, Derry City is based in a different jurisdiction, yet it was playing the League of Ireland. Berwick Rangers in England play in the Scottish League. You know, There's a whole lot of... Monaco were playing in the French League. So Dublin, the team in Dublin could play in the... In the loads of stuff all over Europe on that. So eventually I, we would have got... But we didn't want to go down the road of going to law and stuff like that. We would have preferred to bring the people on board. We had been locked down for years in, 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 in litigation. The consortium set about shoring up support across Europe, going to Irish politician Porrick Flynn then European Commissioner for Social Affairs. You go into an office, there's flunkies everywhere. It's like, they're like royalty and they're, it's deeply impressive for the ordinary people like us who might walk in there. And Sam was used to being the most important man in every room he ever walked into. And he walked in, uh, Owen Callan later told me when he came back, he walked in uh, to Portland's palatial office. Sam marched in anyway and he started lecturing Flynn about the realities of football. And this went on for about 10 or 15 minutes and all of a sudden Flynn got off from the desk and he walked around. He walked around. He says, Mr. Hammam, I don't know if you know who I am or indeed where you are, but I can tell you my word is law around here. And the European Commission runs Europe. Now, will you sit down and shut up and let Mr O'Callaghan make the representations you need to make? Have you got that now, Mr Ma'am? And Mr Ma'am was startled and shut up. You know, again, what I'd say, if they'd have come through the door, um, asked the FBI to come with them to UEFA, that would have been a whole new, different approach and would have been seen as professional, would have been seen as potentially helpful to Irish football. Whereas what it was from day one was civil war. We're taking your arm, we're going to blow you out of the water. We have multi-millionaire businessmen. You're a ramshackle outfit. We're going to walk over you. And that was the attitude that they took, you know. Regardless of how the FAI felt they were approached about the plan, they were left with no choice on how to act, as the League of Ireland clubs driven on by supporters who had banded together to fight the move, showed a united front. I can remember at least three full meetings of the League of Ireland where all the clubs were in the room. 
you know, the conversation wasn't 50-50 or wasn't even 80-20. It was 100%. We have to stop these guys. If we let them in, they ruin Irish football. And there was nobody, even though I knew and other people knew, that there were clubs in the room that had met Wimbledon privately and apparently had said to Wimbledon that they could see merits in the thing. But there was none of them stood up at any of those meetings and put forward that point of view. I'm convinced there was people sitting around the board that saw the merits of Wimbledon, but I never uh, heard at any meeting anybody saying we should meet them, we should talk to them, there's something in it. It was all no, no, no. And the biggest reason for that, in my opinion, was the the way Wimbledon approached it. Uh, prudent to say this at the moment. If John Delaney had been in charge of the FAI, we'd have got the nod and we'd have been go. I firmly believe that. I've said it many times privately to people. Yeah, he'd have seen it. He'd have seen the advantage for Ireland and Irish soccer. Now, at the moment, he's a discredited figure, but he would have seen the upside. Whether the consortium could win their battle through the European courts or if the FAI would be able to hold firm behind the scenes, the deal for the Dons was not going as smoothly as first hoped. It was go, but then, Sam, the price started to creep up. It went on for ages. We persuaded most people here. And I vividly remember Sam in a number of meetings when he came to Dublin. We used to meet in Paul McGinnis's uh, office for a while. And uh, I do remember those meetings and the frustrations as each visit revealed a new demand and the lads meeting that demand and then a new demand. I remember being strung along. The first time I knew there was something up Sam came over and he met with Owen and Callaghan and they went round and did a, a solo run talking to the League of Ireland that was without 10 of the rest of us, which was a black mark, I thought. And uh, I said, that was the first time I said, that's, hmm, so we, oh, I didn't mean to and blah, blah, blah. But there was, it had slowed down, there's no, you know, the process. But sometimes a deal like that would, would take a long time, you know, to put to bed. By mid-1997, the Irish team behind the Dublin Dons' plan were beginning to get worried. Well, the fact that I had figured out that it had, it had gone to ground, you know. And I've been involved in deeds before where things just run into the sand and it doesn't happen. And the fact that they weren't engaged, we were suspicious. We were suspicious at the time. And uh, they, were stopped, they weren't uh, answering phone calls or any stuff the solicitors would send over. Uh, they would not uh, they would not reply to it. Something was up at the time. We tried contact and they never came back to us. So it just went dead at that stage. Then about six months later, I was going through Gatwick Airport. I just looked up the television, saw Sam. Oh, lovely. He was after <laughs> selling the club to Norwegians for £28 million. So I, he never told us that he wasn't going to go ahead with our one. But I can understand if he was only selling to us for six and he was able to flush 28 out of the Norwegians. And uh, it was, uh, I said, good luck. That, that's fine, Sam. 
I started laughing at it because it, it, was, it was typical of the thing. Even after the Norwegian deal, there was still talk that the Dublin move would happen. There were attempts to resurrect it even in early 1998 when Ono Callaghan and Jean-Louis Dupont, the lawyer who had won Jean-Marc Bosman his freedom, had spoken to reporters at the Shelburne Hotel in Dublin and assured them the move was still on. But that proved to be merely the final shot in a war that had fallen silent. The decisive stroke was in 1998 at the FIFA AGM when they reiterated that no clubs could move countries without approval of both football associations. From day one, we had the trump card all the time. And the trump card was that UEFA wouldn't back it. And it didn't matter how many millions they had behind it or how persuasive they were. If UEFA didn't back it, it wasn't going to happen. And we had it absolutely firm from UEFA that if the FAI didn't ask UEFA to back it, UEFA wouldn't even consider it. It was because UEFA would have seen that as a break in the European um, situation of football. If it happened in Ireland, it could happen in, in France or happen in Germany or whatever. So, I think this plan just sort of ran out of road, you know, and then the, the Norwegians came in and that was the end of it then. There were occasional attempts to kind of reignite our interest in the story, but I thought it ceased to be a story when UEFA backed the FAI. I was heartbroken when it fell apart. I really was. Yeah, it would have been such a great thing for soccer. Fuck me. It would have been... You know, think of all the kids. You wouldn't have to give up living at home to be a footballer. The whole shocking trend of generation after generation of Irish kids promising Irish soccer players having to go, like I did, at 14, 15, 16 years of age, to England. And it would have made a huge difference to all the kids who left Ireland between then and now and came home disillusioned generations after generation after generation all that would have been wiped out you wouldn't have to take that boat that airplane say goodbye to your mother and father and your siblings and go off into a strange world you'd be doing it at home and that's what the Wimbledon thing meant to me it was definitely worth trying but the idea was right and it's gone now it's not going never going to happen never going to happen again it was it was wonderful fun and we didn't spend an awful lot of money and we threw a few, a few grand into a, into a kitty for expenses and but it it, it 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 drifted away I think it was great to see when they, you saw the fans uniting and they were very vociferous in fairness to Irish soccer fans or League of Ireland fans when they come together in an issue they seem to do well I think when you were dealing with people like who believe so passionately in their clubs, people kind of recognise it for what it is, whether that's a good or a bad thing, that they don't care no matter what. You know, but the FAI, I think they were always going to go with the Irish um, soccer fans and the Irish soccer clubs here because ultimately that's what they represent. And I think that was the kind of crux behind it. So, But I think it was also because of the power of the unity and the vociferousness of the fans that they came. They just lay down and just said, oh, whatever then the FAI probably would have gone, yeah, a bit of money here, thanks very much, yeah, we'll take that. But I think it was the, the unifying voice of the fans coming together helped sway them. I think just the fact that there was a groundswell of support within the league for National League United, for that opinion, for that opposition, 
I think that was the big thing. I, li I like to think that we did have an impact, yeah. When I look at it now, where the League of Ireland is now, I'm a League of Ireland supporter, always have been since I was a kid. But when I look at it now, can we say that the League of Ireland is in a better place now than it was in 1996? You know, so anything that would have improved Irish football domestically, I, I would have been very open to it. And as I say, I think there was merits in the Wimbledon thing. Um, it mightn't have happened in exactly the way that they wanted it to happen. But I think with the right people sitting on the other side of the table could have made a lot of money for um, Irish football as well. And yeah, I do regret that that, was, that opportunity to even talk about that was missed. It was everybody just throwing buns at each other for 18 months, you know. I would say Sam never wanted it. I think he was up to something else. What he wanted was a credible bid which we gave him, that he could then take around Europe and start an auction. That's my takeaway from it. I mean, I gave three years of my life to that project. Three years alone is a lot of time, and it's a lot of money foregone. Now, I don't blame anyone in Irish soccer for it. It was Sam I blame. Sam took us for a big ride. We laugh about it now. Stuff happens in life. And there's no point, I'm not bitter about it, and I don't care what people think about it, to be honest with you. In the end, Nielstown never got their stadium, and Ono Callaghan's dream never came to fruition. While it is a curious footnote in association football in Ireland, and a microcosm of the deep divisions that have long existed in the game here, there were more serious eventual consequences for the fans of Wimbledon. Their club was moved to Milton Keynes in 2004 and became MK Dons. In protest to the move, loyal fans set up AFC Wimbledon to continue supporting their local team. After six promotions and exactly 14 years to the day since the club's foundation, AFC Wimbledon found themselves playing in Football League One. Alongside their new rivals, MK Dons. New Dawn in Dublin was narrated by Shane Dawson. The programme was produced by Shane Dawson and Owen Brennan. Sound design was by Neil Kavanagh. The series producer of OTB Presents The Classic is Owen Brennan. And the programme was made with the assistance of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, funded by the television licence fee.